reaching net zero emissions by 2050 seems out of reach in the absence of a major acceleration of clean energy technology innovations. India, as you know, is keenly looking at accelerating its entire innovation ecosystem and clean energy forms a major component in it. The startup ecosystem is challenging the status quo. It's audacious, ambitious, you know, it's trying to reimagine and transform the way we produce and consume and uh, not just energy, but anything. I just think we need, um, we probably need tens of companies, if not hundreds, of the size of BP and Shell just working on decarbonization. I believe that in a space like this, it's important for a company to keep disrupting not just the market, but also itself. I'm an optimist and I think uh, people might be thinking in a linear fashion, but a lot of these things happen non-linearly. So. The systems change in some of the sectors, such as mobility, is very palpable. Hi, this is Innovation Frontlines, a podcast by the International Energy Agency on the innovations and innovators that could help take us to a net zero emissions future. I'm Siddharth Singh, a consultant with the IA based in India, working on a range of issues that impact energy transitions. And I'm Simon Bennett, a technology analyst with the IA in Paris, leading work on energy innovation policy globally. In today's episode, we're lucky enough to have with us Viktor Leshnyevsky. He's the co-founder and chief operating officer of Caseworks, which is a provider of innovative solar-powered irrigation systems that enable farmers to farm year-round in a country that otherwise has very cyclical agricultural patterns. Caseworks is based in Pune and was founded in 2016. And Simon, and uh, of course, for the rest of our listeners who perhaps don't speak the language, the word khet means farm in Hindi. So we are talking to the founder of Farmworks or Khetworks. Um, so welcome to the show, Victor. Thank you so much for having me. So of course, we are very eager to hear your story. But, uh, uh, you know, first, for the benefit of our listeners, let's uh, quickly look at the energy and decarbonization challenge in the agriculture sector as we see it. So the agriculture sector has been the mainstay of India's economy for, you know, since independence or perhaps beyond. Uh, contributing today to nearly 40% of all employment despite years of growth in the services and, and industrial sector. During the lockdowns, especially uh, around the you know, COVID and the pandemic years of, of 2020-2021, the agriculture sector also proved to be a social safety net for migrant workers who returned back to the farm to secure a living. But the sector, despite being such a mainstay, is riddled with several structural problems, including small land holdings, lack of adequate returns, high risks, and more. And when we think of the sector in the context of climate change, we often focus on the climate impacts on the sector, such as due to heat waves, irregular weather patterns, and floods. But the agriculture sector is also a consumer of energy, and much of this energy, in fact, comes from fossil fuels. In fact, today, around 15% of India's total electricity demand comes from agriculture, and this share is even higher in certain months of the year when irrigation pumps are more likely to be used depending on the crop cycle. In addition to the electricity from the grid, Indian farms are also significant demand centers for diesel that are often used in generators, pumps, and other machines. There is therefore significant scope for climate mitigation 
or in the specific context of the energy sector, there's significant scope for decarbonization in agriculture as well. The proliferation of diesel-run pumps have also led to the overdrawing of groundwater. And then there's also the added angles of high costs associated with running and renting diesel pumps and generators, which also eats into the profits of the farmers. These fuel costs also tend to be especially high in the drier months of the year. As a result, farmers in India often do not cultivate during the dry seasons, especially in water-scarce areas. This implies that there, is, there are specific times of the year when the farms are not generating revenue, and especially at those times when the product prices are actually quite high. So in these periods, small farms might even migrate to find other work, perhaps in other towns, which also has a social dimension of its own. Now, Victor and Kateworks are working at the intersections of several of these problems. And the decarbonization challenge in agriculture is what we are most interested in. That's right. But this is also a podcast about technology and how to get new technologies in clean energy from lab to market. And while we really want to hear from Victor about his story as an entrepreneur tackling this problem, I think it's important just to, to quickly introduce what I think is the, the key technology innovation behind Caseworks business. And if I can explain that to Victor's satisfaction, then hopefully the audience will, will understand what they're doing in terms of the product too. So from an energy and climate perspective, you know, a good starting point is to think of the technical challenge of eliminating fossil fuels from the particular uh, area of pumping for irrigation. And then if you can do that while you're solving the social and economic problems that Siddharth just laid out, then uh, you can begin to deploy cleaner technologies through the system. And this isn't a new idea. Moving to new energy sources for rural irrigation, especially through electric and solar pumps, has been a subject of many programs and policies around the world. But when Victor and, and Katie, who's his co-founder, when they spoke to farmers about what the farmers wanted, they'd found that a lot of the technology development had been focused on drip-fed irrigation, which aims to reduce water consumption. But that's not what the Indian farmers wanted. They said that they, they had the water, what they needed was the flow, and that they would know what to do with that in their agricultural context. And what Siddharth was talking about, about the, the, the hot season, the dry season in India, means that solar pumps can be a perfect match for solving this problem. But yet, designers were actually not designing for the job that the Indian farmers wanted their pumps to do. So Kathworks has looked at the problem a little bit differently. They started from a realization that the solar PV panels themselves represent a significant upfront cost for farmers. And so even if the energy thereafter is essentially free each year, the key is to keep the panel size as small as possible while meeting the farmer's desire to have a sufficient flow of water. And that means being more energy efficient. And when they started, such efficient pumps were simply not available. So they've redesigned the motor system and the pump to come up with a system that's 0.3 horsepower, it uses a centrifugal pump with a submersible motor, and that means that they can pump the water from relatively shallow sources at reasonably good pressure in a much more efficient way. Their system is three times more efficient than comparable pumps, and that means that the solar panels that they need are only two 160-watt panels in total. And that brings the whole weight of the system to around 10 kilograms. It means that it's a small pump, it's portable, it's more convenient for farmers who can then move it around the field, they can securely store it, they can rent it out to their neighbors to get extra income because it's, it's roughly the size of a liter bottle of water and has relatively low maintenance. So these extra features, as well as just the, the efficiency, 
are highly marketable in the, in the context that they're working in. So that's the technology, but at around $600, it's still a relatively hard sell to farmers who are used to judging pump systems on the upfront cost and the, and the flow rate and, and the horsepower. It's sufficient for most needs, but you know, there are now, I think, non-technical issues that, that Caseworks is trying to overcome in terms of the sales model and maybe even the financing for the purchases. So let's find out from Victor where they stand in terms of getting traction in the target markets, which I think are in Northeast and Eastern India. Did we do a reasonable job at introducing that? And can you tell us just a little bit about your current operations? What's keeping you busy this week? Uh, that's a very nice and thorough introduction, both in terms of the, the landscape and the context of uh, where we started, where we uh, tried to uh, inject ourselves um, and, and sometimes had to kind of adapt, and, and certainly a little bit about the product and the technology. Um, so uh, as you mentioned at Kathworks, we make these small, uh, portable, efficient solar pumps, and, and currently uh, we have deployments across 14 Indian states. Um, but our focus area is, is two to three states in eastern northeast India, as you mentioned, Jharkhand, Orissa, Assam, which are high potential areas because water is available, but lifting it is expensive. And that goes back to some of the sort of structural policy um, history and challenges that you mentioned. Um, in these areas, uh, you know, the potential is high, but there are lots of challenges, um, both in terms of the risks and, and structural uh, issues that have kind of gone from generation to generation. And so... What we're trying to do is we're trying to understand that value chain for the farmer um, and, and the irrigation piece and figure out how we can kind of catalyze that irrigation so that farmers can actually generate income year round and have you know, profitability at home and be able to stay at home with their families and, and grow within their communities. So at this point in time, um, we just had our most successful quarter uh, from January to March when we're selling hundreds of pumps. So it's been a, a really important time for, for the growth of Kathworks. And we're about uh, to head into the monsoon season here. So uh, as we do every every monsoon season, we're sort of uh, taking an assessment of our deployments for the year. Um, we're following up on repair calls, servicing. Um, we are also actively looking at diversifying our vendor and supply chains. The last 12 months, um, certainly globally and within India, um, has created lots of challenges in terms of raw material prices, supply chains delays. And we are planning for, for expansion. So what we've been able to see, uh, both in terms of the business and the impact generated um, in Jharkhand and Orissa, we're looking to expand to two more Indian states. And we're looking to push a little bit of our global sales um, into other areas, specifically sub-Saharan East Africa, where you have a thriving ecosystem uh, around energy access. Um, and you have companies who are at scale, who have customer bases that are looking for more uses for their energy assets. Well, great. Hundreds of units sounds like it could be a fairly big increase for, for you guys. So go back a couple of years to before the, the the COVID pandemic, how many units were you making per quarter? Yeah, 2019 is actually when we started selling. We we had the good, uh, the good fortune of uh, selling just uh, four to five months before COVID started. And so we'd spent a lot of time um, in product development in the field. Um, we were very much uh, an organization biased towards trying to understand what's happening at the ground level, um, incorporating that into our product development and then thinking about the questions of scale and, and business channels. Um, and so for us, we had spent so much time uh, trying to get the product right and trying to understand how to demonstrate, um, how to show the value of the product, how to find the right partners on the ground. Um, and unfortunately, the timing didn't quite work out. So quite literally before the pandemic, we had sold tens, 
of units. Um, and, uh, and we even had some sales sort of uh, mid-process uh, as things were shutting down here and, and had to distribute units and spare parts to partners on the ground. We, we had a couple sales converted uh, even during the start of the pandemic, um, thanks to local partners. So um, our timing, I, I would not say, has, was impeccable, um, but certainly pre-pandemic, we were uh, very early on um, uh, on the sales side of the business. And you mentioned some supply chain issues. How close are you getting now to having a, a product that's mass manufactured or at least you know, manufactured to, to order? Yeah, so the, the mass manufacturability, um, we've been working through I guess, four or five batch revisions of our products. So each time we've done small batch manufacturing and uh, in December, we initiated a, a batch of 600 um, that we kind of finished out in the quarter. We have the capability of manufacturing 100, 120 pumps in a week, um, just on a six-person team. Um, so that's there. The, the bigger question is around uh, the working capital um, and the supply chain costs. So uh, for us, we saw delays of 45 to 60 days for glass supply, let's say, for solar panels. Um, we saw increases of 40% on, on the cost of solar panels um, since last year. Stainless steel prices are up. Copper prices have doubled. So all of this has sort of uh, changed our ability to move quickly in manufacture because our vendors are asking at least for advances to secure raw material costs. Those costs have increased. The delays have been there. So what ended up being an end-to-end -end cycle for us of a couple months um, has now at times extended to, to four months um, with much higher costs. Um, and so... We think that might stabilize over the next 12 months, but certainly kind of quarter to quarter, um, we're checking in with all our suppliers and seeing, you know, what what way we can best work um, so that we can assure an, an affordable system for farmers um, at the end of the chain. Right. I mean, certainly for the International Energy Agency in Paris, we're having a trouble keeping up with all of the different seeming energy crises that are unfolding in, in different parts of the world. So let's really hope that you know, things get smoother within a a year or so. So, Victor, most of the clean energy uh, entrepreneurs that we have been speaking to, uh, you know, for the sake of this podcast and beyond, you know, have been Indians who, of course, may have at some point of time in their in their personal stories, uh, you know, studied abroad or researched or even developed their products abroad. But your case is uh, extremely interesting because you, you were, of course, not born in India and, you know, let alone being born on an Indian farm. Uh, and yet here you are, you know, solving problems for rural India and working hard to deploy, you know, your technology at scale. So could you walk us through your story? Uh, you know, where did you come from? What brought you here? Uh, and in particular, why India and not any other country? Yeah. And I, I should say from the start that I'd, I'd much prefer uh, more indigenous stories and, and more support, the type of support that we had early on um, across all, all the potential in India, I think. That's one of the, the great opportunities and challenges here is that the potential is there specifically within uh, within the younger generation, but sometimes the resources that we've had um, at our start aren't there. And so I think uh, making that playing field more abundant is, is certainly key. But for us um, and, and for me specifically, uh, I was studying, doing my master's in mechanical engineering. And initially I'd studied biomedical engineering for my undergraduate and I thought I'd work on global health and public health issues, which and also timely um, over the last couple of years. But uh, going to grad school, doing a master's, there's a certain research fund uh, allocated. And so sometimes you have to follow what, what pays the bills. And um, I got involved with a lot of clean energy projects. Um, some of them were supported by USAID, 
time. MIT was doing uh, this Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Boston, is where I studied. Um, they were, had one of the USAID development labs, and they were looking at product evaluation. We were looking at solar lights, um, partnering with Solar Sister in Uganda. Um, so that was one project. I looked at another project, which was a modular peer-to-peer uh, -peer distributed microgrid technology, which is new technology development, um, which was supported by MIT and the Tata Trust, the Sudarabji Tata Trust in, in India. And so they had an MIT Tata Center for Technology and Design um, at our university, which was supporting classes and research for graduate students. And it was in one of those classes, essentially, um, that I was introduced to my future teammates, future co-founders. And, and part of this problem, there is an irrigation company, a micro-irrigation company, who said they wanted to find a small solar pump for their small drip system. And as engineers do, and you know, the, the team engineered the system. I was on a different project, but but friends with the group. And they said, here's the system size, battery, no battery, pump, no pump, whatever it is, here's the solution. Um, but both Katie and Kevin, my co-founders, had research fellowships uh, with the MIT Tata Center. And so they were going to India regularly on their own research projects. And the more conversations they had not only with farmers, but also with livelihoods-focused NGOs who'd been working in these communities for decades, they realized that, that that idea of just having a small pump for a drip system wasn't actually it. There's a lot of opportunity with farmers who knew conventional irrigation methods, who didn't need further technology adoption challenges, didn't need further costs, they just needed water. Water was there, um, but productive electricity was not reaching the fields. Um, you mentioned diesel um, as one of the driving factors in irrigation in India. Um, one of the things that doesn't come up in, in the official statistics and some of that narrative is also kerosene pumping. Kerosene-based pumping is also very big for these smallholder farmers where you have one horsepower, 1.5 horsepower pumps, sometimes imported from China. And that kerosene dependency um, is also strong in these areas because it's provided on public distribution for household use, but it was also being used for irrigation. And so when those quantums and uh, and prices change and black market kerosene is there, that also has had significant effects on that irrigation market. So we just ended up spending more and more time focused on a very specific problem in a specific area. So with organizations like Pradhan, with uh, the Tata Trust, uh, we were focused in tribal belt areas. Jarakan was the first place that we sort of tested, piloted. Um, and the reason we were in India was because of graduate school, because of the research, because this was the problem. And we were just trying to understand it uh, very intimately, uh, I, I guess you could say, without really thinking about what the global play might be, what the scalable play might be. Um, and then when we were finishing graduate school, um, Katie and Kevin, and we had another co-founder at that time, Marcos, um, were keen to, to continue the project. They thought it had some legs. Um, and that was you know, some feedback, initial feedback from a couple prototype pumps. And so we joined an accelerator uh, at MIT. And they said straight up, we don't know anything about India. We don't know about the rural markets in India, but we do know about how you run a startup and a business. <laughs> so we're going to try to help you there. Um, and that help we we did need. Um, and then we just... And this is the, the Delta V accelerator. Yes. So this is uh, the MIT Delta V accelerator, uh, formerly the global... Founders Skills Accelerator, but now it's called Delta V. And that's on campus at MIT. And generally, you will see uh, very different companies and very successful companies, I should say, um, from our cohort as well, uh, who go on um, to build disciplined uh, startups. Disciplined entrepreneurship is sort of the uh, the syllabus there. And, um, and so we worked on those same principles, but in a very different context. And we just had to move to India. We had to get closer to the problem. But um, we also had to understand 
how to work in India. So we've been working on that. Um, we've had a lot of uh, signals and feedback that India is a particularly hard place to work, um, that we should be looking at sub-Saharan Africa and other, other places, and, and we will in time, um, certainly with expansion. Um, but it's it's kind of hard to walk away uh, from a problem that has so much potential um, and transformative along all these different axes that you mentioned, not just from the climate perspective, but from rural livelihoods and income generation, the dignified work um, of, of having that social fabric sort of restored um, at the village and, and figuring out, you know, with farming such a, a large part of India's economy, does it remain profitable? Can it, can it be profitable um, for the future? So it's just been one of those itches that you can't stop scratching. And once you're in it, um, you want to see it through. Um, so that's, that's sort of where we started. Um, I don't have any connection to India as such. My parents immigrated from Poland. I spent time, um, visiting Poland in the summers, going to countrysides, but that's about the closest I got, um, to sort of the farm. Um, but it is mainly, uh, about, you know, working on the problem, walking with the stakeholders who now have known us for years. Um, and it, it does feel a little personal in, in that way. So you say years. I think you actually moved the the whole team to India in in early 2016. Is that right? Yes, it's been uh, six and a half years um, of uh, of us being in in India. Okay, so you really dived in in the deep end, working with rural communities and and farmers in India. And how's that been in terms of the culture shock or the you know learning how to communicate around this product with the uh, with the potential customers? Or indeed, some of the the communities and organizations that you need to have on your side. Yeah, I, I think on the culture shock. Um, so my parents uh, were very big on investing in travel as education. So you save up during the year. You don't eat out. You don't buy new clothes secondhand. Everything is saving, saving, saving. And the big investment would be going to travel, um, go to different places, understand the world works differently um, in different contexts. And learn from that and that's just a big component they're very education first um and i'm grateful for that um and that was sort of the mindset that i had starting but i think india was completely different i mean people tell you that india is a, a country of many countries and you say hey okay fine people say things and then you go and i think my first trip to india as a graduate student i went to bangalore and outside to hubli darwad um, to rules part, I was in Mumbai for some meetings, and then I had the chance to go to Manipur um, in the Northeast, um, which is an incredible breadth uh, and variety of the country and, and certainly uh, drove home that lesson. And I think the biggest thing is you have to sort of uh, suspend some of your initial analysis and biases as much as you can and just understand that things work in a certain way because of something, right? It, it's not just random that this happens this way, this happens that way. A lot of people will be like, well, well why why isn't this working better? And, and it's about flipping it and saying, why, why does it work this way? There has to be some reason. Maybe you won't find out, but, um, you know, people uh, people do things for certain ways. And, and part of our job is to understand what that is, what the pressures are, what the opportunities are, um, how things work, and, and see if, you know, we can help um, be helpful in that in that setting without you know creating additional risks and externalities and so um a lot of a lot of the early days was uh, thanks to these livelihood ngos um the pradans the the tata trusts of the world um these are organizations that have been working in communities for decades they have trust they have expertise um they have context and so um 
you know, a lot of our work early on was building these partnerships and, and going to communities and, and working through that. And also, you know, taking the approach at that point in time that we don't want to sell this if it's not the right thing, right? Like we, we want to make sure that we're doing the right thing before we jump in. Um, and, and any interaction with farmer in, in our mind, even though we were coming with a technology idea, we told, you know, the NGO and this got told to the farmer as well, that you all are the experts, right? You can use our prototype, you can use it for one week, you can use it for one day, you could use it for one year, but whatever you say is the expertise, right? Because at that point, you know, a, a piece of metal, a piece of plastic is just that, right? Uh, whether it creates value and, and solves, solves problems for the farmers um, is, is up to them. And, and so um, for us early days, it was just trying to center farmers, center these NGOs, get these learnings, ask a lot of questions and, and ask people to ask questions on our behalf. Um, a lot of times when you have the intermediary, they're like, oh, no, no, this is this is what the farmer would say. And you're like, no, no, please can you just ask one more time um, because sometimes it's different, right? Um, and it was piecing that together, um, which again, doesn't quite a business make, um, but early days, uh, we, we spent a lot of time, we invested a lot of time in trying to understand what the dynamics were um, and, and understanding if, you know, our idea had legs if we were kind of approaching it the right way um so yeah so culture shock sure um but probably no different than going anywhere else and and not really understanding what's going on right um and i think that's uh that that's been a healthy mindset at least i feel like for me um which is just to say hey things work different ways different places um and and the job is to understand what what's going on i mean so Interesting the way that you, you lay that out in terms of the innovation story or the way that I, that I think about this. I mean, you describe that as being you know, the job as much as it is designing the, the product. We see you know, the, the incredible fall in, in solar prices. We know that we've got highly efficient motors. You know, we know that uh, we have you know, many of the technologies that needed to be put together, 3D printing in order to make this, this come about. But you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna press you here. Some you know very high percentage of, of the work is not in in the technology itself, and so understanding what it takes to um, to actually bring that you know that technological development into a market like India into a different context. Uh, where where would you put that split between the technology work and the the work on understanding the market? Um, yeah, I, I think that our our bias and you know part of it is our strength um, and part of it is the, the weakness if, if we don't sort of leverage the strength in the right way um, has been towards the technology. I mean, we're, we're engineers by training, right? We think we're empathetic engineers, uh, human-centered engineers, whatever the word is, that's fine, right? That, that speaks to the product development process, but the commercialization of it, the implementation of it, the execution is an entirely different ballgame. And I, I think that's you know, part uh, of the reason uh, starting to sell before COVID aside is part of the reason the journey has been long is that, yes, um, the technology problem is there, but working and implementing in the environment that is India, and that's from considering farmers as customers, their perspective, thinking about the regulatory environment, thinking about all the other ecosystem factors, whether it's logistics, whether it's marketing, whether it's financing. Um, all of those things are are very challenging. I think 
more so uh, learning how that works and navigating it efficiently is just a big of challenge in terms of culture shock or, or trying to understand how things work than it is being in the field. And because when we're in the field and we're talking with farmers, we're intently focused and, and we think we know what the, the unknowns are, right? But in operating the business, there are so many unknown unknowns for us that, you know, things just pop up all the time. And I, and I do think that, you know, looking back, um, you know, those are some of the things where I, I feel like we, we could have saved a lot of time um, in different ways. And, and so it's a double-edged sword. You know, you come from the outside and perhaps you think outside of the box. You don't take no for an answer in the sense that, ah, oh, things are always this way. They have to be this way because we've had those conversations. We've had people who tell us it's not possible what you just did. And I was like, no, we just sold the pump to eight farmers. They're using it. They contributed, you know, 5,000 rupees each. And this is what they're doing with it. And they're like, no not possible. It's like, I, I can't make up that story that <laughs> I, I, they're, they're easier stories to make up. And so, you know, it, it, it cuts both ways. Um, and I think as we've kind of progressed and matured, um, as an organization, we're, we're trying to shift our work towards that commercialization, being smarter about it, thinking about what our resources are, what our strategies are, what our partnerships are. Um, and that certainly is the challenge of, of the day. Um, and, and there is a bit of a ticking clock, right? Once you have product, once you have sales, and the question is, how do you, how do you grow it? Um, because at that point, you know, uh, that's, that's the thing to do, right? That's the, the mission at the end of the day is to generate this impact and, and that will come through scale. So, um, certainly, uh, that bias has been towards the product technology and now we're shifting it, um, towards business commercialization and the better we can do that, the faster we can do that, uh, the greater success we'll have and, and hopefully the greater impact. Fair enough, Victor. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's of course, uh, one of those uh, cases where uh, as the journey progresses, you discover what, what's important to, to the people you work with and, and how you can incorporate their needs. And as you said, uh, you know, the, the importance of human-centered design in this, the importance of uh, ensuring that uh, the people who are using it are also considered experts who are a part of the process in the development of the product itself. I think it's very critical to to eventually finding that mass acceptance uh, but moving uh, you know gears a little bit on this victor um, you know of course we don't have katie with us today your co-founder but uh, you know are you able to reflect uh, perhaps to some degree on the kind of challenges that she may have faced in particular being a woman in innovator and founder in this field that's a good question siddharth but i think it'd be great if we could get katie to respond should we just dial her in She's currently in the U.S. We should be able to speak to her. Here we go. Hello? Hey, Katie. You know how I told you about the Innovation Frontlines podcast by IEA? Siddharth and Simon, the co-hosts, have a couple of questions for you. Over to you, Siddharth. Oh, wow. Well, it's great to have you, uh, Katie. We were not expecting to have you on the show, but great that you could be dialed in. Uh, so firstly, thank you very much for, for joining us. Uh, for the benefit of our listeners, Katie is a co-founder of Kateworks and in fact uh, is now on the board, uh, now having moved back to the United States. So Katie, as I was just asking Victor, uh, you know, you of course are, are not Indian and, and you know, uh, for sure you're not from rural India. So what was that transition for you like? And I ask this especially, uh, you know, especially given the context that you're a woman entrepreneur in this clean tech space. So what were your unique experiences? What were the challenges? And were, was there any skepticism that you faced 
uh, on account of you being who you are and and the various identities that you that you contain absolutely well thank you so much for having me on the show happy to be uh, called in um so it was certainly a quite a transition both shifting to india starting a company uh, and i'll have to say of course i i haven't ever run a company in the us so i don't have anything specifically to compare that to um but it was a lot of new experiences i think the first thing that really became clear was that in some rooms i walked into the room and i was a foreigner whereas in other rooms i walked into the room and i was a woman and it was clear very very quickly uh, a lot of the the challenges around um being a woman you know we'd be having conversations where victor would be sitting next to me uh and the often we were having meetings with men and the men would only look at victor only speak to victor um but victor has always been an incredible ally and and boosted women up including myself and would always make sure to not only defer to me but also say you know katie my boss our ceo um which was was wonderful but i think i faced a lot of the challenges that female entrepreneurs face worldwide there's sexism there's doubting women's ability and then there's some things that people are used to from characteristically used to from male entrepreneurs perhaps a bit more bravado or exuded confidence that is typically different um in how female entrepreneurs function and present themselves you've told us a little bit there about some of your your experiences so thanks for talking about especially the you know the side of establishing the, the company but what about the the response of the investment community um how is your experience working with the investor community in india um and being able to 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 raise capital um in that specific environment sure um so raising capital in india the first few years we had a lot of doubts that we would stick around as we were foreigners who moved to india we had no real ties to pune to the community it was it was we were there to get this job done to make kfx happen to serve the smallholder farmers but it was a lot of questions of why you know you have no personal connection to smallholder farming to india so we got a lot of doubt that we would follow through and stick around which of course is something that investors really care about but as years went on year 3 year 4 year 5 that doubt faded away um as a woman raising funds in india well i was raising funds in india us one of our institutional investors in the us talked to company or organizations all over the world but i think it was it was some of the experiences are pretty global experiences i have a lot of female friends who are ceos uh and the fundraising experiences for women seems to be pretty universal there's a lot of questions um i've been asked about my relationship status which one can only assume is then asking about marriage and kids i've been uh stopped mid sentence plenty of times told i was emotional once i was told not to be hysterical uh which was you know a huge red flag but i think when you're 
fundraising, you're looking for a long-time partnership, especially at the beginning. So it's a terrible thing that we experience this type of sexism over and over and over, but it's also a really easy vetting tool for any funding you'd want to take on. So we're lucky to have found the investors that we did who are wonderful support women um, and uh, have been great partners. We actually touched on on some of this back in episode one, where we were recording with Smita Rakesh from the Clean Energy and International Incubation Center. Uh, and she was talking a little bit about the importance of having gender balance on both sides of the table among the, the investors and the, the entrepreneurs. Did you find that the, the challenges were equal on both sides or um, the, it seemed that there was progress on, on one of those sides more than the other? What do you mean by challenges are equal? So I guess what I'm just wanting to ask about was something around the, the benefits of having you know, females also among the investment community. Yeah, absolutely. And I wish that my meetings with investors were 50-50 male and female, and they certainly weren't. Um, so it's funny because I'm about to say something that we always hear investors say, which is they wish there were more female-led startups that, you know, then they could choose from and that would bring up their numbers of female-led uh, startups they've invested in. And of course, I wish there were more uh, women investors that we could have uh, chosen from, worked with. But alas, there is deep institutional sexism on both sides that has made it a very unbalanced uh, breakdown. But yeah, it would have been great to have some female investors. Oh, thank you for sharing your experiences with you. And of course, we're, you know, we're sorry to hear of the, the challenges and the sexism that you encountered up to now in, in your career. But we certainly hope that by discussing these things publicly and making sure that people are aware of them, not only will the system begin to improve, but also that it will reassure the next generation of uh, female entrepreneurs and also investors that are, that are coming through. Are there any other tips or you know, pieces of advice that you'd like to give uh, people who are perhaps in you know, the position that you were in five or six years ago? Yeah, absolutely. There's some things I wish uh, I had known five or six years ago. Um, I think the most important thing that I learned over time was assembling a, a group of other female entrepreneurs, because that's how you can have that support, people who are going through what you're going through at the same time and who can give advice, real-time advice, who also can give reviews of, you know, investors that they've talked to, of people they've worked with, which is a very important thing and I think should be done more widely. Uh, again, because as I said, it's, you know, it's a two-way street and it's someone you, you get into bed with for years and years to come. Um, the other thing I wish I had done was a bit more educating myself on, I'd say, perhaps uh, typical pitfalls that maybe women make to not stand up taller, not get out there more, not push themselves forward. and. There's a lot of uh, qualities that are gendered, which absolutely doesn't apply to everyone. And maybe half of them apply, half of them don't to you. 
But there was this book that I, I recently was reading called How Women Rise. And it talks about 12 different habits um, of that women tend to do to not really progress through their career. And the reason I think it matters so much in entrepreneurship is when you're starting a company, you're having you're going job to job to job. And, you know, in your same role as CEO, you start out, you know, I started as a technology developer. And then, uh, you know, there's fundraising and then there's running the organization, there's expanding. So I think there's a lot of different things you have to learn and you have to show to keep progressing. And there's stuff that you might not naturally do. Um, and it's important just to push yourself and practice doing it. And there's there's plenty of things that I thought were just qualities someone had or didn't have. But it turns out practice makes perfect for so many things. Like I used to think, you know, oh, I'm not a very good public speaker. I'm scared of it. But you do it over and over again. And uh, now I'm told I'm a very good public speaker, which I assume is just not a natural talent. But it turns out so many of these things that people say are natural leadership qualities can be learned and probably have been learned by the people who, you know, quote unquote, exude them naturally. So I think that that cohort of women and then educating yourself, pushing yourself um, really would have made a big difference for me in the start. So I hope I hope that's useful for someone out there listening. Thank you, Katie. I think that is uh, extremely useful advice. Uh, I'm sure uh... Uh, our female listeners especially will will really appreciate uh, these words of coming from your experiences um, and uh, you know at this point uh, i know that you have to run so thanks very much for joining us even though very briefly and uh, we'll continue our conversation with victor after this great thank you so much for having me take care thank you katie yeah and just um, continuing from, from the point that smita made in in episode 1 you know, I'd like to, to turn to ask you, Victor, a little bit about your experience in raising capital and uh, you know keeping the company uh, afloat in, in financial terms. But first, you've described yourself as a for-profit social enterprise. What does that mean to you, that term? Yeah, that's a, a very good, good question. Um, and I think one of kind of our early foundational questions, which was, um, you know, we we thought we understood a problem. Um, we thought that we had a hypothesis for a solution and we had to figure out the vehicle to sort of get there. Um, and so from our perspective, if developing technology is part of it, um, if trying to grow and scale is part of it, we thought that market-based solutions, and that was part of the hypothesis that we could create these retail markets for solar pumps here in India, that, that having an enterprise and having a business um, was the way to do it. Now, the trick is um, how do you balance that with the impact, which is central to our mission and um, quite frankly, our kind of one of our animating, I mean, it might be the most animating part of this is that, you know, we, uh, we don't want to be just uh, another pump company, right? Pumps in lots of ways are commodities. There are lots of folks who make pumps, um, right? We, we want to make impactful pumps, right? We profitable pumps, but impactful pumps, right? We want to push in the areas that have been pushed before. And so for us, um, it, it comes down to what we value and how that translates to our decision-making. So uh, are we always making the best business decision in terms of profitability costs? No, 100% not. I, you know, we could be making this pump. We could be, you know, looking at, at other markets. We could be looking at non-rural livelihood markets. 
And let's say we could be looking at energy efficiency benefits. And at the end of the day, maybe we eventually will take that on as a way to keep the overall organization more financially sustainable and support our efforts in, in rural areas. But we really, uh, day by day, you know, make decisions that uh, are oriented towards um, current and, and future impact. You know, what, what sort of risks can we take early on? You mentioned capital, especially when early days we were grant funded. Um, you know, what, can we use that money in riskier ways um, to prove uh, harder hypotheses about uh, smallholder farmers, right? And and I, I don't think I had a full appreciation of that um, when we started, um, but certainly early stages, we had that grant support and a little bit more flexibility. And I, I wish, uh, you know, uh, looking back now, it's like that uh, that capital in that time period is very useful in, in taking those risks um, because as you develop and as you take on funds and you take on investors and you build out that business, then the balance sort of shifts, the expectation shifts, depending on uh, sort of who you're in bed with, who's who's your investor, who's that that partner in growing your business. Then um, you know you have to have an alignment around what returns are, what the business side of it is, what expectations are, and and that makes you know everything a little bit different. Um, how commercial are you? High impact focus. So for us, you know, it's it's been a progression as the organization moves, but being a a you know for-profit social enterprise and impact-oriented startup, whatever term, these are are just terms. There's no kind of legal definition in India as there are in, in some other places. And so for us, it just means that we have to lead with mission values and we're very clear about the calls that we make, about the decisions we make at, at the current time. Um, and some of that is difficult conversations with other stakeholders, right? Um, and even within the team, right? We have to sort of make calls. So, um, as a startup, you just sort of time is super limited, energy is super limited, and so learning what to say no to is something that I'm still learning. Um, but certainly factors in to this impact orientation because we have said no to things that you know might be more profitable, um, and and maybe some of our thinking changes because we learn more and we understand how important that profitability is to get to the scale that we want, right? Um, because maybe at the end of the day, impact is impact. So. Um, it's you know it's a constant conversation I would say, but uh, driven by by values and and kind of a, a mission there. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that there's no strict clarity around around these issues. I think you you've explained that very very well in terms of the the, the trade offs you're having to make. What I understand from that is that the you know this being a for profit social enterprise has meant that you've relied perhaps you know, as long as possible on on grant funding. And you've now transitioned to bringing on board some, some investors. Tell us a little bit more about what those conversations with investors have been like when you've outlined your your mission and perhaps they've had in mind some some pivots towards towards other sectors. Yeah, so I, I think um, you kind of uh, nailed a bit of it early on. You do, you know, I would advise folks getting into the space to to try to get the grant money um, and not, you know, ha have a game plan with it. Um, know that that won't always be there, but um, try to de-risk as much as you can in that time period. Um, when we had initial conversations on investment, um, which we eventually raised um, in a convertible note basis, so comes in as debt converts to equity, um, the idea being that it's still early stage and you don't quite know the value of the company. Um, you know, those conversations, we had a number, but all of those conversations were with organizations 
um, with institutions that were aligned on impact, or at least said they were um, kind of in, in the mission and the vision. I think it's really important in these conversations and um, to, to try to understand from the start what the business model is of the investor. We got that advice. We were in some design impact award program and they invited an investor to speak to however many semifinalists were there first 15 minutes all these enterprises were complaining they just need more money they just need more money and the investor says hey but have you ever asked me what i need to you know what my business is what returns i need and if you guys don't ask that in your meetings with investors then i can't take you seriously right like we have our own business to run and i think that's been very clarifying because it just sort of distills uh you know what the conversation is about and i think yeah and, and most folks will tell you up front like this is what the business is i just had a conversation with a potential investor and they're like look we're purely commercial impact is a bonus but unless you're getting us you know 10 15 x returns that has to be within you know the investments that we make and it's a five-year window it's a seven-year window and this is how we look at it right and it, those conversations have to happen up front and so i think for us you know finding the investors and there is you know, there there is a bit of of a trade off, um, you know, between impact investors and commercial investors. And if you take on impact early, you know, I've heard from social entrepreneurs, I didn't want to go to impact investors because then I don't think people would take me seriously later on, right? Future commercial investors say, okay, this is an impact thing; it's a feel good thing, patient capital, this, that, the other, and. But to be clear, we didn't have that perspective early on, right? That's that's a couple layers ahead. You have more conversations, you realize. And so for, for us, it was really important that we had um, investors who understood what we were trying to do and aligned with that. And I think we were lucky in that. So, um, you know, Social Alpha, which is a sister concern of the Tata Trust, um, uh, came in. Uh, they're based out of Bangalore, but uh, Indian um, outfit. Um, we had Volo Foundation which is a foundation based out of Jupiter, Florida, that focuses um, on different uh, climate change initiatives. They also have their own VC fund, Volo Earth. Um, and then Sangam Ventures, which is a clean tech fund um, based out of Delhi and, and Kartik Chandrasekhar there. I mean, these three investors, they get what we're trying to do and they're supportive of that. Um, and I think, you know, Kartik comes to mind from Sangam where he looks at, at hardware. Hardware is, is tough. Um, and he wants to make sure that each one of his accelerator companies, portfolio companies has a good product market fit. And before you even think about reporting sales and revenue, right, make sure the fit is there and make sure you have a repeatable model for that sales. Because once you're generating revenue and, and sales becomes sort of the word, right, in terms of impact versus commercial, once you're generating sales and everyone's like going to say, okay, how quickly can you grow, right? <laughs> how much are you, are you increasing revenue sales? And then it's an entirely different ballgame. So, um, these investors uh, have been patient. Um, they've been flexible. Uh, they've been supportive, um, and and at times, you know, I would say they even see more potential than we do uh, on our on our lower days. Um, and so, I think that's really you know important. Beggars can't be choosers. At the end of the day, um, I, I will say that. And if you know, sometimes, especially now, uh, how it's looking, the the macroeconomic outlook and the things that are coming out of all these Silicon Valley, you know, uh, accelerators that just take whatever capital you can, uh, your term sheet's going to be bad, this, that, the other. I understand that for sure. But if, if there is a chance to have alignment um, and at least communicate that early on, um, then that's been the biggest help because when times got tough with COVID <laughs> and, and with all these supply chain issues, we have had a, a backstop of support. Um, and it's just really important, um, especially in, in the way the 
the world is working the, the last couple of years and, and maybe the next couple. Well, exactly. And speaking now in late May 2022, the, the noise is coming out of, of Silicon Valley in terms of the, the availability of, of capital for clean tech startups aren't, isn't great. So great to have those backers on board that you were talking about. But one thing you didn't mention, the IA is a, an organization that's you know, focused mostly on government policy. You didn't mention any government programs or government grant funding uh, along the way particularly. You know, is there anything there that you think could be, any gaps that could be filled? Um, so, yeah, it's a very good question. So I think the um, Indian government ecosystem um, is becoming much more supportive of innovators, of startups. Um, I think over the last few years, I mean, the years that we've been here, uh, there have been any number of initiatives. Um, some of it is, you know, addressing specifically startup and startup registration and then giving uh, allowances or benefits to those startups. Um, some of it is, uh, you know, uh, Niti Aayog, um, which is kind of the Planning Commission Innovation in, in India. They're starting at the, at the start with Tinker Labs and trying to get innovation in sort of the, the earliest stages of education, which will pay dividends in the future. So I, I do think that ecosystem is changing, that support is changing. On the capital front, um, it is still uh, tricky, I think, in in sort of two ways. One, I'll speak to individually, and, and the other is more general. So individually, you know, you mentioned how weird it is not to have kind of Indian co-founders. Um, it actually becomes quite a bit of an issue uh, to have a cap table that's not 51% Indian-owned. Um, and that actually restricts us from a lot of government schemes, whether it's grants. We went through entire grant process for two years um, and were rejected at the very end because a final waiver wasn't signed off because of our cap table. Um, it also restricts us from you know central schemes for low-cost working capital for small and medium enterprises. Um, so we don't have the opportunity to access that, which is a, a personal thing. And I think that's not really a huge issue in the scheme of things, given how many you know Indian startups there are. Um, but certainly in, in other startup ecosystems, you might see uh, a little different favorability. You know, you'll take any any foreign innovator as long as they're creating value for the country, as long as they're creating jobs for the country. You know, um, so that's a, a personal experience. So I can't speak too much um, on the grant side because we sort of excluded ourselves. Um, but I do think the other thing to think about is how quickly things are moving. Right. I, I discussed with, with you all just previously in terms of changes in supply chains and costs and how radically different our landscape looks like a year ago to now to a year from now. Um, and I think one of the questions is how much flexibility can you have in government funding and government support that matches um, the sort of dynamics of the startup environment? Um, and that's tricky. I'm not, you know, I, I don't even. In fundamentally, you know, what government's role is and how flexible they can be. They need to be accountable for the money they spend. All of those things considered, um, I just think that that's part of the the challenge um, in having a government as a player in this ecosystem is that the government policies and schemes might have very different timeframes than the lifetimes and, and needs of a startup, right? And and I think that is, is tricky. It's just one, I feel like, you know, maybe my interpretation wrong, but I just feel like it's one of those realities where, you know, when you work with government, maybe, and you're trying to get support, think of a different kind of timeline, time frame. know that there might be some delays, know that, you know, whatever support you might use for specific things, um, and then look to other stakeholders for, you know, uh, other needs. And perfect, because this is the moment where I need to just remind the listeners that you'll be able to find in our show notes, the link to our recent report on how governments are helping clean energy startups. 
So that's a very interesting point, Victor. And you know, I think uh, you were referring to the PM Kusum scheme uh, as you spoke about some of the you know some of the government role in the uh, solarized pump uh, you know uh, initiatives in the country. So how has your experience been in uh, you know working in conjunction with these government programs? And what do you think the government can do to encourage innovation and deployment in this field in particular? Yes, so I think you know PM Kusum is the the flagship scheme um, for solar pumps, and um, even before that, since 2011, um, there have been capital subsidies, both central and state, for solar pumps to try to open up the market um, for solar pumping. And I think there's there's a big question um, in terms of um, how these programs have rolled out, what the uh, end effect has been in the field. I mean, recently there was a news report um, about the installation rates. Um, of the pumps and how much that is compared to how many pumps were sanctioned and, and what opportunities there are to improve. Um, I think the government's role in, in providing subsidies and trying to de-risk the market is important. Um, I think getting the subsidies to farmers who need it is important. Um, but I think uh, the way some of these schemes are operationalized is challenging. These are large schemes um, in a very changing environment, uh, as I mentioned before. And so what we've seen is we've seen a lot of adaptation over the years. So the Ministry of New and Renewable Energy has come out with a decentralized renewable energy policy um, policy statement towards livelihood applications in rural areas. We've seen them put out tenders for innovative solar pumps. So outside of the PM Kusum scheme, can they encourage different types of solar pumping solutions? Um, and, and we've seen kind of a, an increased speed in reacting, reacting to the changing times. So recently, there were some changes in terms of the requirements or bank draft statements for these schemes. So we do see this push um, towards kind of being more dynamic uh, within uh, within what they can do to try to address the needs. But I think at the end of the day, um, from our perspective, we think there's a big opportunity to think about how do we incentivize the market players with solar pumps in India to really focus on customers, on the end customers, on the end farmers? Are we actually providing them the quality of pumps that they need at the price point that they need with the servicing that they need? And anytime you work through an intermediary, whether it's government, an NGO, any other organization, you're going to lose a little bit um, of, uh, of that directness of, of being able to be centered on those incentives. And so you know, things that we've proposed in conversations with MNRE and with other stakeholders is, are there ways to be more flexible um, with the funding and, and use it towards financing? You know, can, can we think of ways to mobilize financial institutions, de-risk um, some of the loans that they might need to give, whether that's towards manufacturers or distributors or directly to farmers, to at least try to increase the interest in the market engagement um, and the traction for these solar technologies so that we have better proof points. Because if the, the solar subsidies, the solar pump subsidies are so high um, that there is no meaningful way to eventually get to that cost point um, from the product side, right? And if you subsidize for 70, 90%, is a solar pump ever going to be at 10 or 30% of the current cost? Um, you know, is there a way to look at these subsidies and, and make them more needs-based and a little bit easier to access? For farmers who actually don't have those irrigation options or you know highest potential for for climate um, co2 mitigation right so I, I do think there are some things that are happening in terms of changes being dynamic being a little flexible but what we would hope to see 
um, is different mechanisms. If it is subsidies and maybe thinking about whether it's supply side, demand side, are there logistical challenges, are there cost challenges? And then looking at flexible funding opportunities that um, sort of cultivate some incentives alignment um, from all the players because it is just a, a difficult environment to navigate. Um, and I do think that's part of the reason from the farmer side, from the manufacturer side, and from the government side, you're seeing um, perhaps not the hoped for results in some of those solar pump deployments. If I paraphrase what you've just said, the, the lesson here for the, for the policymakers, for the program designers, is a little bit to think about what is the goal here? What's the end game? And how do we get you know, all of the value chain onto the right path towards the, the right price point and the right business model? by the end of let's say by the end of the decade which brings me on to my my crystal ball question for you about where where will we be at in 2030 how do you see this this market developing what do you think is going to be the kind of the uptake of, of your product and maybe the the competitive landscape yeah i mean i'm i'm not quite in the predictions business but i do think you know over the next seven eight years for solar powered irrigation specifically and, and some of this decentralized renewable energy, inevitably they're gonna have to be some more market forces at play, uh, more retail markets opened up. Um, and I think you're gonna start seeing that um, from a policy perspective, uh, maybe there are mandates in terms of what the default sort of technology needs to be um, for any sort of scheme or industry, whether that's you know, uh, mandating more efficient uh, PMSM or BLDC motors for industry, right? That might significantly push things forward in a way that's not necessarily market driven. But then on the other side, I, I think you will see, you know, greater demand for solar pumps because look what we're seeing in urban areas in India and the way that sort of early adoption of uh, electric vehicle scooters has gone through the roof. There, there are a lot of people buying, but they're not quite sort of the typical early adopters. We see the same parallel in rural areas, right? Where the costs of kerosene, of diesel, of petrol are skyrocketing, where now clean energy solutions are becoming sort of better for business. Um, and so I think inevitably, you know, by 2030, you're going to see more of the retail markets. It needs a nudge um, from a supportive policy environment. Um, I think the other thing that's going to change a lot um, is the last five years have seen, you know, a lot of growth in the sort of agri-tech sector, which have been a lot of value chain plays um, in, in sort of underserved markets. And I think that plus some of the work going around farmer producer organizations, so these um, collectives of farmers um, creating business organizations, and some of the financing that's coming in as well, I think you're going to see a lot of that drive some of the solar pumping segment because it's going to go what's going to lead is the profitability of farming right and so as the farm systems change as you know farmers get aggregated that's going to have secondary effects on our business um and both the, the channels and and um you know what, what it means uh, where solar pumping fits into that value chain um because yeah the the, the economics of things will, will change so i think by 2030 you're going to see a uh, a thriving solar pump market that's going to be a lot more market driven. Um, but I think some of the players are going to be new. Fascinating. The, th the thing that I'm also going to be watching is how some of these markets in different countries are going to, to join together to accelerate things. You've mentioned at the top of the episode about how you're looking to, to expand into sub-Saharan Africa. And you know some of those lessons and learnings are going to be crossing borders, transferring between countries. I mean, this has been a great sort of I think rattle through 
policy. We've talked about technology. We've talked about you know what it takes to get the the product from the lab to the market. Thank you so much, Victor, for for sharing these thoughts with us. But we still have one thing that we we need to subject to you to, which is our rapid fire questions. Great. Let's bring it on. We have five questions. We're looking for for short, you know, concise answers. And the first one is: Will India get to net zero emissions before or after 2070? Uh, I think probably after, but there's going to be good progress, and on the whole, it's going to be good for the globe in terms of India's contributions. Excellent. And uh, who will your biggest competitor be in 2030? This could either be a technology, an actual company, perhaps even the government. I think it's actually going to be around climate risks and farming profitability. I think that's actually the big question mark. Great. And, and it's the one big topic we actually didn't manage to cover in our conversation was around how the change in climate is affecting what you're seeing in, in the agricultural sector in India. We'll save that for another conversation. If it weren't for energy, what would you be working on? Uh, probably I would default to my global health and public health, but um, outside of that, I've been thinking a lot about uh, sort of local community organizing. So whenever I'm no longer in India, I'm back home, I'm thinking about how that local impact works and building movements there. Indeed, Victor, I think as you uh, mentioned earlier, this would be a very good time to be working in public health. Uh, but moving on to the fourth question, what new type of product do you hope your company will be marketing in the year 2030? So I, I think we'll have a variety of pumps by then, but I really uh, think that we'll be looking at this energy asset that farmers have and how do we generate more value and income at the field for farmers, whether that's through uh, irrigation, farm processing, new business opportunities, um, and, and thinking along those lines, because there's a lot of value to unlock at the field. And last question, if you could collaborate with one company in India or elsewhere in the world today to scale up your operations, which one would it be? I think we've had a, a lot of admiration and respect for um, what uh, Sun King, formerly Greenlight Planet, has done. Um, and, and certainly you'd want to partner up, um, go upwards, and, and folks who are already addressing scale. Um, it'd be really interesting to see um, if there'd be any collaboration there. So thank you, Victor, for sharing your experiences with us. Uh, we wish you the very best of success in your initiatives to accelerate the clean energy transition. Thank you, Siddharth. Thank you, Simon. I really appreciate the conversation today. You have been listening to a conversation with Viktor Leshnyevsky, the CDO and co-founder of Caseworks. Subscribe to Innovation Frontlines and the IEA's Everything Energy podcast, and look out for the next episode in this series on how India's clean energy entrepreneurs are identifying untapped potential for technology to drive energy transitions globally, and teaching us about new policy challenges to be overcome. You've been listening to Innovation Frontlines, a podcast by the International Energy Agency on the innovators and innovations that can take India, and indeed the world, to a net zero emissions future. Our next episodes will feature in-depth conversations with India's most promising innovators working on this global challenge.